Well, good morning. I certainly would like to thank the elders and Ken for giving me this opportunity to be able to speak to you today. It's really, Texas is a really nice place. I used to didn't really think what was all, you know, the big thing about Texas, but now that I realize everybody's just so nice here. And so I've really enjoyed the stay here, and I've really enjoyed getting to know some of you. Please forgive me. I might forget your name, so be patient with me. Um, the majority of my, s of my sermon this morning will be in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So if we could all turn together at that moment, at right now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'd like to, that's where we'll be talking about the majority in our, of our time today. Something that's been on my mind a lot recently is how society has become so divided. I recently saw a movie that took place in the 70s during the Vietnam War and during the, uh, during the Nixon-Watergate scandal. And a guy in the, in the movie said, you know, I bet America will never be as divided as it is right now. And you see society today, and you see the news media just talking about how different everyone is and how separated people are and how America is so divided. And that can kind of be, uh, that can kind of be saddening to us, to constantly be hearing about how we're all separated, how we're all divided into sep different groups and stuff. And I thought it would be a good lesson just to talk about unity and how we are united. And I think there's no better verse and there's no better book in the Bible that kind of describes unity and unity with Christ than Ephesians beginning in verse 11 all the way to the end of chapter 3. And there was a mystery in the Old Testament. If we look at Isaiah 52 verse 10, you don't have to go there, I'll read it to you. Um, there is this great mystery and the verse says, the Lord has made it bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of, the God, of our God. And it says here, all the nations of the earth and all the ends of the earth, everywhere will, be, will see the salvation of God. So the great mystery was, how is God going to bring the Gentiles, you know, these foreigners, to become his people just as the Israelites were? And so if we, would like, if I if we could start reading in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, i just like to see how God made that plan come about, and how we can benefit from that plan, and how we can use this in our daily lives. So if you will read with me, beginning in verse, in verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once were far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ, so beginning in verse 11, we kind of see how the Gentiles were distant from, distant from God, and they were treated as outcasts. You know, they were branded uncircumcised by the Jews who were circumcised. And we see this a bit of an animosity between these groups. Um, one of the reasons why the Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcised was not just, you know, talking about this covenant, but the fact that they, that was like a slang that they gave to them. That was a that was a way of saying that they were tarnished people, that they were not part of God's people. That was like a name-calling that they would do the Gentiles. And the Gentiles didn't like the Jews either. They had, there was this animosity between these two groups. And, but if we look at it, the Gentiles specifically, we can kind of see in verse 12 five elements of how the Gentiles were deprived and disconnected from God. We look, it says that um, they're without Christ. They had no relation to Jesus. 
which kind of, um, which if we look at the context of Ephesians, um, it was mostly a Gentile church, and Paul is kind of speaking to the Gentiles of that congregation. Um, the Gentiles were also excluded from the citizenship. Some of your verses, some of your translations might say commonwealth in Israel. Basically, they were not citizens of Israel. They had no purpose in God's plan for that, for that country. It says they were foreigners to the covenant of promise. And it kind of emphasizes that word foreigners of the covenant of promise. It kind of emphasizes the actual physical distance that the Gentiles had, the Gentiles in Italy, the Gentiles in, in all these different countries. It kind of describes the physical, but also on a deeper spiritual level. It talks about how they were foreigners of the covenants of God to his people, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, and of David, and how, there was this, and how they were excluded from it. They were basically aliens. What is an alien but something that is excluded from us? That's why we, when we think of aliens, we think p- beings are not of this earth, things that are excluded from where we are. And lastly, and I think one of, the, one of the most saddest parts, is that they were without hope. It says, you, uh, it says that they were without hope and without God. And when it says they were out without hope, it, that it means that they, were with, they could not escape the human dilemma of life. And they did not look forward to any relief. And so what is the human dilemma of life? Well, the human dilemma of life is that if you do not have God and if you do not have hope in your life, that basically means that this is your life. You wake up in the morning, you have breakfast, you take a shower, you go to work, you come back home, you eat, and you go to bed. What do you do the next day? You wake up, you eat, you take a shower, you go to work, you go to bed. What happens the next day? You wake up, you go to work, and so on and so forth. There's this cycle. There's an endless cycle of no hope. There's no hope for what you're doing. You're just doing it to exist. You have no hope in something better and something greater. You're constantly just working. And that's how the Gentiles were. Without God, that's how they were doing it. Because they were without God. Their, pers- their own personal sphere was isolated from God and without their plans. Without God, that's your life. This monotonous series of things. And sure, you can, you can have vacations and stuff, but when it comes down to it, that's the plan. That's the cycle that people had without God and the Gentiles had. And if we do not have God, that's, how it's, that's what happens. But look at it says in verse 13. Paul says, now, you know, but now in Jesus Christ, their lives are different. The inclusion of the Gentiles into God's purposes might have been something secondary. They might have, they might have been separated at that point. But now, primarily, primary speaking, the Gentiles who are now far off, who are aliens physically and spiritually, who are far away in a different country, are now, are now joined to Christ himself. And that the blood of Christ has brought them together now. Now they are one. And, they, and if, we, if we keep on reading in verses 14 to 18, we can see how God has brought peace with, um, and, his, and his people through Christ. And if we will, will read with me. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In verse 14, Paul talks about this division, this wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
how, you know, there was this name-calling that we see that the Jews gave to the Gentiles. And we see how Jesus himself has broken down this division. And he, and Jesus, is this great peace between these two opposing groups. And Jesus has grabbed these two different groups of people, these two enemies, and has brought them into one, into one group, into one people. And we see that Jesus, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who makes peace possible. He's the one who announces peace being available. And, he, and without Jesus, there is no peace without him. You cannot have peace without God. And an interesting fact about, about when he says here this wall of division is that, um, is that in the Temple of Herod back in the Old Testament times, there was an actual wall that divided the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. They could not worship God together. If, there um, if the Gentiles passed over into that court, there was actually a sign that you would die, you would be executed. So that's how, that's how strong this division was, that the penalty for you to worship together with a Jew and a Gentile was death. And the, that was the way the old, things the old uh, covenant was, that there was this death. But God has brought about peace because God is peace. He's made covenants of peace with his people in, in ancient times. And Christ now is this prince of peace that brings, that brings people together. Because if we look at verse 15, we see how the destruction of this wall, having abolished in his flesh the, in, the enmity, how Christ has broken down this wall of division between us. If we went back to verse 11, we see how the source of both the Jews and the Gentiles' problems was how they were both in the flesh and how, how they had this, this enmity between them. But God's solution, his plan for salvation, is in fact in the flesh as well. Because Jesus took this hostility that the two people had into himself on that cross, and when he died, this hostility died. Because like it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ died in the flesh. He took upon the, himself these two opposing groups, this, this animosity, and he killed it when he died on that cross. You, if we look at verses 15 and 16, we see that Christ has done that. He has destroyed this division in himself. And out of that, he has created a new man, a new person. Because these two groups of people, these two opposing groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are now made one into the cross. Because from Jesus' death, where he destroyed those two groups of people, from his resurrection, a new man is created, a new person. And this new man is Jesus himself and, and the people who he will incorporate into his body. Because humanity was once divided. It was divided between the Gentiles and their nations and the hundreds and hundreds of the Babylonians, the Romans, the Egyptians. And there was the Jews. The Jews were also divided. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Herodians. But humanity, who was once divided, who was once separated into hundreds and countless of different factions, is now reconciled and redeemed in Jesus Christ as one. Because Christians, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, are a new third race, which is unified, which is a unified community united in worshiping Jesus Christ under him as, his, as their head. And these two groups are now one in Jesus. And so there is no need to be calling the Gentiles uncircumcised or the Jews circumcised. There's no need to be calling each group heathens or Jews. There's no need for name-calling anymore because they're, they're all the same. They may look differently, they may speak different languages, they may act differently, but at the end of the day, they all have the name of Jesus Christ in their hearts and on their foreheads. And though they may look differently, they're all the same with Christ. If we look at verses 17 and 18, 
um, it speaks of Jesus coming and speaking to the Gentiles, and how and now in verse 18, they have access to God by the Spirit into God's presence. They used to be, uh, you have to go to the temple to experience that. But now they have access to God. They have access through Jesus Christ to God himself. And so if we will continue reading with me uh, until the, the end of the chapter, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. And so Paul explains here that those, those who were strangers and foreigners are now enjoying the exclusive privileges that Israel also had, they are now citizens of the household of God. When you are a Christian, you are now a citizen in the household. You're now a member of his house. When you're a member of someone's household, that means that you're their son or their brother or your, their sister. And that is who we are now. That is who Christians are. They are now members of this household of our Lord. And if we look at here, it also says on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he, that basically means that the teachings that the apostles and the prophets gave is the basis on which the church rests. And we see this building that is being built, and each member of that building is a brick within this beautiful building that is being built up. And Jesus occupies a special section of this building as the chief cornerstone. In ancient buildings, the cornerstone was the, was, had the primary loading stones that determined the lines of the building, and I won't bore you with architectural stuff, but even if a flood came, and even if there was a disaster, you could go to that chief cornerstone and you could rely on that, that that would be the strongest section of the building, that you could always go back to that and rely on that. And that is who Jesus is in our lives. He is this chief cornerstone. He is who we constantly must be going back to. And he is the foundation of which this community of God is being built. And now this building, which was just a building being built up brick by brick, is no longer just a building. It is the temple of God. It is the temple of which um, in which something greater is happening now, where Gentiles and Jews are being built together for the, as the habitation of God in the Spirit. Because the old temple of God, the old temple, the actual physical temple, was to show that God had taken up residence with his people. But now Jesus is here, and now we are his temple. And Jesus is greater than the temple because with him we can experience the very presence of God. Because if we have Jesus in our hearts, we have God within us all the time. We no longer have to go a thousand miles away. We don't longer have to go to Israel to experience and to be with God. But we experience God and we have God within our hearts because Jesus is in us. And we, can, and we have the access to God through Jesus Christ. Because he has divided, he has made the need of a temple unnecessary. He has taken away that division that was once there. He has united people together within himself. And now if we'll read with me beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body 
and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And so going into chapter 3, we see Paul, st Paul states why he wrote the epistle. And he's kind of going back to the previous chapter. And in the, previous, in the beginning of this chapter, if we notice, Paul calls himself a prisoner of God. And for this reason, he, and if we go back to chapter 2, we see how it was because God wanted to bring these two people together. And how he wanted to unify people. In fact, Paul constantly talks about unification in his epistles. He talks about it more than 43 times and throughout all of his works. And so he's talking about how for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for this reason, he's in jail. He's not blaming the Jews for his imprisonment. He's not blaming the Romans for his imprisonment. He's, he could have blamed each one of those, and rightly so, because those were, they were the ones who were persecuting him and were putting him in jail. But Paul sees his, obe his obedience to faith to be imprisoned as something greater. He sees this as an opportunity for him to suffer, to bring this about. He is willing to suffer and to go through pr imprisonment because for something higher, for something greater, for this unity, for this purpose of uniting people together within Jesus Christ. And in verses 3 to 5, Paul is talking about this mystery which, we, uh, which God revealed to him, which according to Paul was unknown to people, but has now made known to Christ's apostles and prophets, if we see which in other ages was, was not made known to the sons of men. Keep that in mind as we, look, as we go forward into this chapter. And if we look at verse 7, Paul is a minister of this, minist of this mystery, which here he calls the gift of the grace of God. If we see in verse 7, it says, which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. And so moving on to verse 8, it says, we can see the purpose and the significance of Paul's gospel, because it says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities in power in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory." What's important to look at in verses 8 to 10 is that when we go back to verses 5, verse 5 what we just looked at, that it was not made known to the sons of men, is that, we had that people had no idea how salvation was going to come about and that the Gentiles could not escape their predicament. They could not escape their vicious cycle. But jumping to verse 10, we look at how, it's, how it says, and when you look at verse 10, it says that not even the heavenly beings, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places knew how God was going to accomplish this, how God was going to bring the Gentiles about. But from the beginning, it says in verse 9, in God who created, uh, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, we see how God had this divine plan of bringing the Gentiles to be his people under the church in Christ, which he, which he had kept hidden, which he had not told anyone but himself. Yet from the very beginning of creation, God had set this plan in motion. He had this plan. He had this purpose. And that God's church, this great mystery, 
of how he was going to bring this about is now in fact revealed. And this, this wisdom of God is now uh, being revealed to him and that people are not only, glorif- not only men are glorifying the wisdom of God, but that celestial beings such as angels, the principalities and powers of heaven, are glorifying God because of the great wisdom, because of his eternal and his great plan that he had in motion, which he had stated from the very beginning. If we look back at Genesis, how God had, had told Eve that one of, uh, the, uh, one of her children, one of her descendants, will crush the head of the serpent. From the very beginning, God had a plan. Can you believe that? From Genesis, thousands and thousands of years ago, God had this plan, which he set in motion across the aeons until that very moment when Jesus was on the cross. That's amazing. I don't know about you, but I've never had a plan that long. I don't even know what I'm going to have for lunch today. So we see how um, God had this great plan from the very beginning. And if we look at verses 11 uh, to 13, and it reaffirms this by stating in verse 11 of the eternal purpose which God had from the very beginning, which was now accomplished in Jesus Christ, who gives his followers boldness and access and confidence through faith in him, how we have this confidence to approach God. We no longer need some fancy temple. We no longer need to do these rituals to to access God, but we have him just by going to him in prayer. And we can see two things about God, and that God is faithful to us because he had an eternal plan from us, and that we gain boldness and access, and that we no longer have to do these rituals. We no longer have to sacrifice cows or pig, not pigs, sorry, not pigs. Jews would be very upset if that was pigs, but not cows, or we no longer need to do animal sacrifices, we know, but we just open our hearts to him. And now we have this confidence and this access that we are with him, that we are his people. We no longer have to be worried about that we're Gentiles and that we're separated from God. But we are his people. We have this confidence in Jesus Christ on the cross that we are his children and that he is our father, that we are members of that great household of God. And then in verse 13, Paul then asks the Ephesians, and in extension us, that we do not lose heart at Paul's tribulations, because all that Paul has done up to this moment is for our glory. And this glory that God is, that Paul is speaking of, is of the Gentiles and the Jews becoming equal and fellow heirs in the promise of God. We do not need to worry about our special, our genealogies. We no longer need to worry about where we came from or who we are. We do not need to worry about that, because Paul suffered all of this. He was in prison, and Jesus suffered on the cross to bring us together as one people. And so now let's read until uh, verses 14 all the way until, uh, let's read verses 14 and 15. It's kind of introduction to this prayer that Paul has here, because this is now his prayer for this realization of what he's been talking about this whole time. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now from what I have seen, nowhere else in all of Paul's epistles does he say, I bow my knees. And when you think about when you're on your knees, it's such a reverent posture. When I was on my knees as a little kid, it's because I really wanted something for my parents. I really wanted this to happen. And here Paul is saying that he is on his knees in prayer, asking, asking God for this. And that here he's having this deep and heartfelt prayer. And now let's read the prayer. Let's read what, what is Paul praying for. And it says, in, starting in verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul's prayer is that God would grant them to be strengthened with might, that Christ may dwell in our hearts and in their hearts, so that we be, may be able to comprehend the love of Christ, which passes beyond all knowledge and all understanding, which nobody had ever thought of. Nobody had ever come up with how this was going to happen, but God did. God had this plan. And that we are filled with the fullness of God. And what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Remember in verse 12, in 2.12, how it says that the Gentiles had no hope being without God. And this is no longer the case. As when we are filled with the fullness of God, if we look at verse 17, Paul asks that Christ may dwell in our hearts. So where there was once no hope, now we have hope in Jesus Christ. And Christ, who is being this agent of God's plan, has unified these two people into one united people, into one united church. And that this plan, this fullness of God, of having him within our hearts, surpasses all knowledge, especially that of men and angels. And that that plan and that knowledge and that fullness is the love that Jesus Christ had for us on that cross, that love that he had as he looked down on us and as he suffered, as he had his nails in his hand, as he had nails pierce his hands and his feet, and as he had that crown of thorns, that each drop of blood was a drop full of love and of care for, for us. And Christ loved us so much, and, he, and that was so important to him, that he died so that we may be united as one in him. And so now let's, let's finish this chapter. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages without end. Amen. So lastly here, Paul is praising God for what he's been able to accomplish and can do. God can do above and beyond what we can think or even imagine. Angels had no idea how he was going to bring this about. Men certainly had no idea how he was going to bring this about. But God did. God had this plan. And starting in Genesis, going back all the way to Genesis, we see that God had this plan of someone who was going to come who would crush the head of the snake and he would defeat, who would defeat animosity, who would defeat sin, and he would bring them together and he would bring salvation. And no one had a vague idea how this was going to happen. Some may have had a, an semblance and a sort of a, a quasi-idea, but no one had the full idea, the full plan that God had planned within, him, within his mind. And God was able to accomplish the unthinkable. He was able to accomplish something that nobody could have comprehended. That he would bring salvation and hope to two different people who were both lost, two enemies. Basically, you know, like, It'd be like making a cat and a dog get along together. That's how, that's how divided these people were, and he's being able to bring them and unite them as one. And he would achieve this, that God would achieve this unification at a cost, a very dear cost, but he would send this by sending his only son, Jesus, to die on that cross for both, for both groups. So that when his son was resurrected, his plan, um, so when his son was resurrected, his plan would be, would be, be accomplished. from the very beginning, his plan would be accomplished. And in doing so, when Jesus Christ was resurrected and his plan was accomplished of bringing back these two people, that he would be glorified not only on, on earth, through us in the church, but even in heaven, 
he's being glorified because of his wondrous plan. And God now offers to all who are united in Christ this hope that he will do exceedingly abundantly more than we will ever think or imagine if we choose to follow him in our lives. That God can make the impossible possible because from the very beginning he had a plan and he will include us in, the, in that plan if we let him. Because like, like many other places, God has grabbed people from all different walks of life, all different origins, and he has brought them as one church and one people in Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't matter if you're a male or female, Greek or Jew, but he has brought us all together. And so what is the main message? What is it that I want you guys to get out of this? What is, what is it that I want you guys to, to see from this message? And what I guys want you to see from what we've read today and from what I've talked about is that God can do more than we can ever imagine because God brought salvation to the Gentiles, a people who was once lost, and made them his people. And that how he would do this was a mystery. And that was mystery was hidden to everyone, even to the angels in heaven did not fully understand what was going to happen. And that great mystery was that Jesus Christ would die on the cross, uniting both the Jews and the Gentiles into one people, the church, which declares the wisdom of God to the inhabitants of heaven itself. And if this wise and glorious God, this great and magnificent uh, being, who is able to think of things that we can never imagine, if, from him, if him from the very beginning could enact this plan, which no mortal or heavenly being could devise, then how can we, as Christians, not trust God, filled with the fullness of God, which is the love of Christ in us, in our lives, that he will do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever think or imagine through the love of Christ on the cross. Because God has brought people from all walks of life, from all places. I've gotten to know some of you, and some of you are from Louisiana, some of you are from Texas, some of you are from different parts of the country, some of you are from different countries. I met some people from St. Lucia, from San Salvador, from the Philippines. And isn't it amazing that Though some of us may have been born speaking a different language, though some of us come from different places of the world and of the country, we're all here right now. We're all here united, worshiping God. We're all here singing and glorifying him. We're all reading his word. Because it is not the church of Texas. It is not the church of the Spanish speakers. It is not the church of Salvador. It's not the church of the Greeks. It's not the church of the Jews. But it is the church of Christ. And it is the love of Christ, and it is the death of Christ, and it is his resurrection that has brought us as one people today, unified in one purpose and in one, pur and, and in one goal, to glorify God, to strengthen each other, and to be united in Jesus Christ, so that we together, iron sharpens iron, we may unify one another as Christians, glorifying him and bringing salvation, not only and bringing salvation to the world, by helping others see the light of Christ within us. Because we are united as one, in the church of Christ. There's a verse in Zechariah where it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, in Zechariah 8.23, in those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And now today, us in the church of Christ as Christians, I hope and I pray that people can look at us, ten men from different languages, and from different nations can come to us and say, and will grasp our sleeves and will say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And God is with us, and he has united us as one people. And if you have not taken the steps to be united in Christ, to be united as one, God now offers this plan, now offers you his plan and his, 
way of unifying us through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. And so if you're not taking the steps to be unified in him, to be part of this great plan, which from the beginning God had in mind, to be part of the Church of Christ, to be part of his people, please, I ask you and I implore you to please come forward as we stand and sing that we may glorify God together. <laughs>